0: Uh, I was just uh, in the library waiting uh, for this, and I picked up this little book, uh, Introduction to Francis Schaeffer, that was on the table there, and I came across a little passage that I thought would set up uh, today very nicely for us. So I beg your indulgence just to read a couple of paragraphs from Francis Schaeffer talking about how I came to write my books and talking about a time uh, in his Christian walk when he went through a time of doubt, uh, particularly because of a, a lack of vitality in life. ...that he was seeing in the church. He says, this led to doubts about the reality of spiritual things in my own life. I realised that although I'd been studying for years... ...and although I'd been active in Christian ministry... ...and although I was becoming more and more known in certain Christian circles... ...the reality of my own spiritual life was less than it had been when I was a young Christian... For about two months, I walked in the Swiss mountains and prayed and thought. When it rained, I walked in the old hayloft above our chalet. And as I prayed, I went all the way back to my agnosticism of his youth. With as much honesty as I could, I asked myself, was I right in becoming a Christian? The unreality I had found in the Christian world. The ugliness I saw in all too many Christian relationships. The fact that Christians were not able to talk to 20th century people. All of these things made me ask, was I right? Finally, the sun came out. I saw that my earlier decision to step from agnosticism to Bible-believing Christianity was right. And I also discovered that I had been missing something vital to my biblical understanding. It was this, that the finished work of Christ on the cross back there in time and space, has a moment by moment present meaning. Christ meant his promises to be taken literally when he said that he would bear his fruit through us if we allowed him to do so, not only in our religious life, but in all of our life. This brought my life to a great shattering moment. What began as a struggle ended in a song, And without that crisis, I could never have written True Spirituality, for that book is the outcome of that personal struggle. That the work of Christ wants to bear fruit in our lives now, in our society now, through us as salt in society, and that it's not just about our religious life, a particular little compartment or section of our life, but that Christ actually wants to affect the whole of our life. Uh, I thought that would link with the lecture you had earlier about um, uh, Schaefer on holistic uh, spirituality and would lead very nicely into an application of um, an understanding of what it is to have a spiritual life, a spirituality, to a particular field. This is um, an area of research I've been really uh, excited and enthused to work on for about the last year. Now, and I've been applying some of these uh, insights that I'm going to share with you in different fields. I've been applying it partly uh, to the world of education, uh, but also to the world of doing apologetics, and uh, I think seeing some real uh, fruit uh, through uh, having an understanding of what spirituality is and viewing things through that lens. And so, this is a view. Of uh, education through the lens of spirituality. This isn't about how to do that little compartment of education that's about the spiritual. But how to do the whole of education through an understanding of the spiritual. And that's why I call it a vision for spiritual education. And I'd just like to do a little preface. A little quote from Deuteronomy 31 verses 10 to 12. And Moses uh, uh, having uh, broken the first set of Ten Commandments and about to, to uh, write down the, the next ones, uh, is up on the, the Mount getting some reassurance from God. And uh, at the end of every seven years, says Moses, in the year for counseling debts during the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing Assemble the people, men, Women and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord. And of course, fear here uh, might be better translated as respect, have awe for, to learn, fear the Lord your God, and follow carefully all the words of this law. To learn, to fear, to follow. You will see how this fits in as we go on. As Perry uh, G. Downs says about this passage, Moses states that he wanted the people to learn to fear the Lord. The word translated learn, lamath, is the most common Hebrew word for learning. It implies a subjective uh, assimilation, a taking in of the truth being learned. Uh, an integration of the truth into life. And learning was to be demonstrated in two ways. By a change of attitude of the heart and by a change in action. So learning something, having an attitude and acting on the basis of it. And this is the root of the understanding of spirituality that I've been working on. In UK schools, there's a requirement that schools deliver spiritual education uh, in their schools alongside moral education and social education and so on. There's a government requirement for spiritual education and that this spiritual education should be socially inclusive. It should include everybody. It, of course, has to be a uh, long word here pedagogically rigorous. That means um, it has to be a good way of doing teaching. And philosophically sound, of course. The Education Schools Act of 92 made this requirement for spiritual, moral, social, cultural development of pupils in all state schools. Now, of course, requirements for moral, social and cultural development were much better understood than the requirement for spiritual development. Uh, And if you try and go to the government documents for some help in what do they mean by spiritual development and so on, uh, you don't find very much help at all. Uh, Ofsted, uh, which is the body that that, um, uh, goes into schools and checks that they're uh, following the rules and doing it well and so on, said that spiritual development is definitely not another name for religious education. It's not just part of the, the timetable of the curriculum. It's the responsibility of the whole school and of the whole curriculum, all of the things that we learn. As well as activities outside of the curriculum. i.e. This spiritual development has to be about everything that the school does. So it seems pretty, pretty important and, and all embracing. So how do we define and develop spirituality? Well, Oftus says that what is meant by spiritual development has not always been clear. <coughs> <laughs> it is a very British understatement, indeed. Uh, but they do note that any definition has to be acceptable to people of faith, people of no faith. Now, I might have some f- philosophical quibbles with the way they're putting it here, but you know what they mean. And people of different faiths. So it has to be inclusive of, of, of everybody, whatever their viewpoint on these uh, issues. Um, another quote from Osted Spiritual development. They say, it's the development of the non-material element of a human being, which animates and sustains us. Remember, they say, spiritual development has to include everybody, whatever their viewpoint. And here's our definition of spirituality, spiritual development. It is that development of the non-material element of human beings. How does this include the metaphysical naturalists in the school? The, the, the people who would agree with the, the Richard Dawkins kind of worldview. It seems to exclude those people uh, because they don't believe there is any non material part of the human being that could be developed. Um, so the government are here kind of issuing uh, mutually contradictory advice to the schools, which is not very helpful. Uh, some of you may have seen this little video before. It's me uh, in a graveyard. Uh, uh, (laughs) describing the the difference between uh, two basic ways of looking at the world. And uh, I use this in one of my school conferences, but here's uh, just a little clip of me wandering around a graveyard explaining stuff. (laughs) For a place dedicated to dealing with death, a graveyard is full of life. A graveyard is an oasis of nature in the midst of the concrete jungle. And the sort of place that makes you wonder if nature really is all there is. Whether, for example, there might be life after death. Fundamentally, there are only two basic worldviews. On the one hand, there is metaphysical naturalism, on the other hand, there is supernaturalism. Naturalism says that material, physical reality is the only type of reality that there is. Everything is just atoms in the void. For very obvious reasons, most naturalists don't believe in life after death. Supernaturalism covers a wide variety of views, from deism to pantheism, all of which agree, however, that naturalism is false. A supernaturalist is simply anyone who believes that material, physical things are not the only things. Most supernaturalists believe in God. Some believe in God and in human souls and in angels and demons and life after death, but not in ghosts and some believe in ghosts but not in God. Whatever a supernaturalist believes in they believe that naturalism is false and a naturalist believes that all varieties of supernaturalism are false. There is no middle ground here no halfway house. Either naturalism is true or Naturalism is false, and one way or the other, it makes quite a difference. I often find that uh, 16 17 year old students can get quite annoyed sometimes at the fact that there's an either or choice uh, that has to be made here, uh, and that you know one of them is true and one of them is, is false because of the way that it's defined, um, but nevertheless. There is this uh, basic divide. There's a lot of diversity under the supernaturalism umbrella. Christianity would be a particular type of theism, which is a particular type of supernaturalism. There would be some variety under the materialistic uh, heading as well, um, whether you were a secular humanist or an existentialist or uh, a nihilist or whatever. Um, But there is nonetheless this fundamental difference And we want a way of including people across that spectrum, across that divide, indeed, within spiritual education. Because I would agree with a number of uh, atheist writers um, who would say that it's not as if uh, to be an atheist means that you don't have a spirituality. You can have a spirituality without being a supernaturalist in terms of your worldview. But Ofsted... A couple more quotes here, not being particularly helpful still. um, Spiritual can be interpreted in different ways, they say. Let's let's just leave it vague and not try and solve the problem. As uh, uh, Marilyn Mason from the British Humanist Association says, um, spiritual development in the national curriculum has meant that educationalists have to decide what spiritual means. So it's going to be uh, implemented, this rule, in different ways, in different places, depending upon what what people decide they're going to mean by it Um, and under the pressure of all the other rules and time and money and so on, um, one suspects that there's a pressure for it to mean as little as possible. So spirituality, when people think of spirituality, I think a lot of people immediately think of it's to do with what we do. Spirituality is about prayer or meditation or yoga or doing recycling That's spirituality, Um, a requirement that schools have a a daily act of collective worship, Uh, more honoured in the breach than in the implementation of this rule, but it's it's about something we do. Well, maybe there's a partial truth to that. Maybe it's about what we feel. It's about our emotions, our passions. Uh, A little government discussion here, quote, uh, feelings and convictions about the significance of human life, or lack of it. Uh, and the world that peoples may experience within themselves. It's about helping peoples to sort of feel things and experience things. Maybe it's to do with how we relate. Uh, has to do with relationships with other people and for believers with God. So is spirituality about what we do, our practices? Is it about our, our feelings? Is it about our relationships? Uh, I really want to sort of say Yes. It's about all of these and more. Uh, worldview, I've mentioned that in the video, is a connected idea. And different people uh, will uh, define worldview uh, more narrowly or broadly. Uh, and the broader definitions approach what I'm meaning by worldview. A very basic definition of worldview would be it's the answers that we give to the really basic fundamental questions. You know, who am I? Where am I? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution? Where are we going? Should we take sandwiches? All of those age-old metaphysical questions. (laughs) James W. Sire in his uh, very good book, The Universe Next Door, uh, puts it in a slightly more uh, rounded form. He says, a worldview is a commitment. A fundamental orientation of the heart, that is, of the person. Uh, an orientation that can be expressed as a story or as a set of uh, presuppositions, of, of beliefs. Assumptions that might be true, they might be partially true, they might be entirely false. But you hold these assumptions. And you might hold them, he says, consciously or subconsciously. You might hold these assumptions, this view, consistently or inconsistently. But you hold these views about the basic constitution the basic makeup of reality and this provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being to quote from Paul quoting from an ancient Greek poet and this is approaching what I mean by spirituality but I mean something slightly broader and I mean this and the diagram is on your handouts there I think that a spirituality is to do with your Beliefs, most especially your basic worldview beliefs, is to do with your attitudes, your beliefs coupled to a set of attitudes towards the things that you believe. And that these together lead you to action, to behaving in a certain way, to uh, incorporating certain practices into your life or not. A spirituality is a way of relating to reality. That is, you could divide it up to ourselves, to each other, to the world around us, and I think most importantly, to whatever you think ultimate reality is, be that God or not. So it's a way of relating to reality via your worldview beliefs, attitudes, and behavior, and that all of these things are involved and related to one another in a spirituality. And you could put it in a slightly different form, in a sort of self-reinforcing loop. Once you buy into a spirituality, it becomes a bit like a snowball running downhill. tends to just get bigger and bigger, reinforcing itself. Because you have certain beliefs, faith's beliefs, and certain attitudes, this leads you to acting, behaving in certain ways. Because you tend to live in a certain way that tends to reinforce your beliefs. And because you're living and believing in a certain way, that tends to reinforce your attitudes towards things in a certain direction, in a certain way, and so on. Which is why it can be very hard to get people to move from one spirituality to a different spirituality. Um, I'll just refer you to Nick Pollard's uh, work in um, Evangelism made slightly less difficult on worldview, where he has a diagram of worldviews as self-reinforcing and talks about um, positive deconstruction, how to help people um, discover some dissatisfaction with inconsistencies and so on in their own worldview in order to make them more receptive to moving to a different worldview. A similar thing would apply to spirituality as a whole. And I said here you could describe it as faith and works. One of the ways uh, James, for example, in the Bible cuts it up, you could say this is faith Beliefs and attitudes is faith. This would be faith that, belief that, and this would be faith in, belief in. I believe that the chair is capable of taking my weight, and I demonstrate that by putting my faith in the chair to actually do it. So I not only have the faith that, I also show I have the faith in the chair, because I'm actually trusting it. Um, And then that leads you to works, to doing things in a certain way. Now, none of this, especially since I, I prefaced this with uh, that quote from Deuteronomy, should come as a surprise to a Christian way of looking at things. I mean, after all, Jesus, very famously, uh, this references Mark 20, back to Deuteronomy 6.5 as well, asked about what the most important commandment is, says, it's to love God with all of your heart, take that as your attitudes. And with all of your mind including, of course, your worldview, therefore, and with all of your strength, i.e. what you do in the world. Heart, mind, strength. Beliefs, attitudes, actions. Uh, learn, fear, do. Back to Moses. Uh, indeed, someone here was wearing an Ife's uh, jumper uh, with uh, a very interesting logo on it. Who's Who's got the, the Ife's uh, top on? Yeah, can you... Um, so, show us your, uh, what your IFES top says. <laughs> yeah. So, if someone could translate out for us as well. Believed, loved, and followed. Marvellous. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, Jesus is believed, the mind, believe that, loved, an attitude of your heart, followed, something you do. So they've nailed it. Um, We've both come at this independently, uh, which is always a good sign that you're onto something when you find people independently arriving at the same solution. Um, Now, although I've grounded this in some biblical passages and in, of course, my my Christian approach to this issue, the definition of spirituality I've given here is not one that's particular. To a Christian spirituality. This is just a general schema. A general way of framing the issue. And different spiritualities. Would fill in. These beliefs, attitudes and actions. In a different way. Richard Dawkins would fill out. That diagram in a very different way. Than Francis Schaeffer. Would fill out that diagram. But both of them. Have a set of worldview beliefs. Both of them. Have certain attitudes towards what they believe is real, whether positive or negative. And both of them uh, tend to uh, do things, or have done things, on the basis of those beliefs and attitudes. Uh, A couple of other references just to show that this is widespread. And once you start looking through this kind of lens, you start seeing it everywhere. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when Peter has just preached the first sermon, Pentecost. When the people heard this believing something that I the claims that Peter was making about Jesus and the resurrection he'd communicated some truth claims they were cut to the heart. Their attitude to these truth claims that were made was a sort of positive response of, "Gosh, given that that's true, what should, what should we do? We must, we must behave in an impro- respond in an appropriate manner to these truths." And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? How shall we behave? What shall we do as a consequence? Or Paul in Colossians chapter 3, 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word, think about connotations of word, logos, meaning of John's gospel and so on, the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name, i.e. in the character of the Lord Jesus. Beliefs, attitudes, actions. Christian spirituality is filling out that scheme in a very particular way. It's still to do with life in Christ and, and forgiveness and salvation and all of that. But it still maps into this general schema that I think will apply to any uh, philosophy, religion, worldview, and so on. Now, given that that's what we mean by spiritual, let's just stop there briefly and see if there are any uh, questions, uh, points of clarification that you want to spring back at me before we move on slightly. Could you, could you take one touch of that? Yeah. That one? Thank that's two. You don't have to draw the drawing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Sonia, yes. I've given you you the reference. Anything? Okay, we're moving on. (laughs) So given that that's what we define spirituality as, it makes it a lot easier for us to think, well, what is spiritual development? I would suggest this. Spiritual development means making progress towards the goal or the ideal. And of course, any development has to have a, an objective goal that you're making, you're getting closer to. Um, it can't be a shifting thing that's vague and just up to everybody else, everyone to decide what it is for themselves, because then what you end up with is just change. There's a difference between change. And making progress. Progress has to have a goal. Which is why you can only have moral progress, for example, if you believe in absolute objective moral values. Spiritual development means making progress towards the ideal of self-consciously. Not like Sire was saying unconsciously and so on, but self-consciously informing all of one's relationships with reality. Yourself, other people, the world around us, ultimate reality through the internalization of worldview beliefs appropriate uh, concomitant attitudes that's uh, attitudes that are that go together with those worldview beliefs in an appropriate manner and of course behavioral practices appropriate behavioral practices so give a Christian example, um, I believe that uh, in Christ, God loves me and shows his forgiveness of me. Um, An appropriate attitudinal response to that is uh, thankfulness and love. And because I believe uh, those things and I have that positive attitude towards them, it leads to me trying to follow Jesus as my teacher. If I am a demon, on the other hand, I believe uh, that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. I think that that's a jolly bad thing. And I hate his guts. And I want to do everything that I can to stuff it up royally. And so I, um, you know, do the kind of things that demons do. So on. So you can see that you can share the same beliefs, but radically different attitudes to that same belief can lead to radically different behaviors. And. Um, Different beliefs could lead to uh, different attitudes, different behaviours, or different beliefs could, could sometimes lead to the same attitude towards uh, same behaviours. And so you will find overlap between different uh, spiritualities, different uh, attitudes that people will have, different practices that people will adopt. You know, uh, Christians and Muslims both pray. We might uh, have differences about how we structure it, how formalized we are about it, or so on, depending on what traditions we come from, and so on, um, but we 're d- both doing fundamentally the same kind of thing, trying to co- to uh, communicate with God, praise God, and so on, give time over to God, and so on um, but we 're doing it with somewhat different attitudes, I think you 'll find, and because of somewhat different beliefs yes beyond could, could you comment on this? From this, on, on the claim that well, you know, all religions basically about loving one another, so there is some yeah. behavioural kind of of, of directions. Uh, how would you comment on that? Yes. Say you say about that. that well, that's right? the, the essence. Um, it's making a leap from noticing from the from the claim that there is a something in common between all spiritualities. And then making a leap from saying there is this something in common to saying, therefore, that is the most essential part of all spirituality. And that's an unjustified leap. How do you get from the claim uh, X is something that all spiritualities have in common to the conclusion, therefore, X is the very core and essence of spirituality? There's a missing premise there. So there's a leap in the argument. The first premise is not true. Uh, because some spiritualities uh, would say that you should love your brother, or love the person who's part of your, your group, but that you should hate the other people and should kill them and, and fly aeroplanes into their buildings and things, if you follow those particular <coughs> beliefs. No? So it doesn't seem to be a, a true premise that it's, that it's based on, and it also then seems to have a, a leap in logic uh, from um, saying, okay, this seems to be in common, therefore it must be the essence of everything. <laughs> that just doesn't follow at all. And, and actually, as I was saying, the, the action that you're being called upon to do to love your neighbour might be grounded in very different um, attitudes and beliefs. And you say you, you, you are asked to love your neighbour because then everything will go well with you. On a sort of, if I scrub their back, they'll probably scrub mine. Kind of viewpoint. Or um, uh, the differences between. Often people will say. Well Jesus's golden rule. That's, that's the same everywhere. And there's a very good article by uh, Peter May. On the UCCF Be Thinking website. On testing the golden rule. In which he contrasts the way that different religious traditions. Express the so-called golden rule. And why uh, Jesus's expression of it. Is the most radical. The most other orientated. The most sac- self-sacrificing grounded uh, in very different beliefs and attitudes than some of the other formulations of it it are. And so uh, agreement at one kind of level of this diagram doesn't necessarily mean agreement at the other levels. Uh, And so you can kind of mask really important fundamental differences by just trying to draw attention to a superficial similarity in, in a sense. Okay, so we're on to just mentioning very briefly the ancient way of putting some of this, and the medievals would have put it this way, um, the little term ortho. Um, it means straight or, or correct. Um, many people will, I think, know the word orthodoxy, if um, nowhere else than because of G.K. Chesterton's wonderful book, Orthodoxy. Um, but that's to do with correct or straight belief. I'm an orthodox Christian. Not in the sense of I'm a member of the Eastern Orthodox Church, but I'm a Christian who holds orthodox Christian beliefs. But the medievals would also talk about orthopathy, straight attitudes, and orthopraxy, praxis, what we do in practice, um, your actions. So orthodoxy, orthopathy, also praxy, just some old-fashioned medieval ways of saying Um, The same thing that I've already said in more highfalutin language. (laughs) But I throw that in. So I think we've made quite a lot of progress. This is exciting. Um, We've got a definition of spirituality uh, that seems to be able to include everybody, unlike some of the definitions the government were giving. Uh, And that's allowed us to develop a, no pun intended, a definition of spiritual development uh, that, again, seems to be inclusive. Now, how do we apply this, this is where the, the rubber really hits the road, to thinking about spiritual education? And remembering that's this across-the-board notion of doing education through the lens of spirituality. Well, I think it's by connecting the concepts I've already given you to some more concepts. Uh, sorry that I have to plump various different concepts on top of you, but uh, there's nothing for it. This is what we have to do. We have to connect this idea of spirituality... To ideas about rhetoric, not the bad uh, uh, manipulative type, but the ancient classical type of rhetoric that Aristotle advanced. Transcendental values. uh, Transcendental, just a long word, meaning uh, above and beyond. Values that you could apply to anything. Values that you can judge any particular thing with reference to in terms of. And community as well. So let's look at rhetoric, and I'll stop and we'll see if we have clarifications and so on. Back to Aristotle, uh, 4th century BC, and uh, particularly his very famous book on rhetoric, where he defines rhetoric as follows. Rhetoric is the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular Uh, matter, that should be manner, I think, I don't know, uh, admits. So I think it's very interesting that he gives an objective definition of rhetoric here. It is about looking at a subject area and noticing things about what you're looking at that are in and of themselves persuasive. It's not looking at a a subject and saying, well, that's not very persuasive. How can I kind of persuade my audience to buy this product, which actually I know is pretty rubbish really, a bit of a cheap knockoff, but you know, we want to make money, so we better you know, advertise it and sell it to people. No, it's about thinking hmm, that is a really good product. That's, that really convinces me that I want that in my life. How can I share that convincingly with other people by drawing their attention to the things about the product that actually are useful? Yeah. Now, we're into communication theory. They're, casting, they're writing one essay mm-hmm. on communication theory. Uh-huh. And this is the uh, communication theory of antiquity. Yeah. So you, you can link with your curriculum here. Smashing. Mm-hmm. So rhetoric uh, involves uh, the principles of how best to communicate these objective observations to the particular audience that you have in mind. So it's partly about the thing in itself, it's partly about the audience in and of themselves, and how to connect them together in the best way. Uh, One quote from Aristotle's The Rhetoric, he mentions three crucial elements of rhetoric, very famous elements of rhetoric. It says, of the modes of persuasion, of the ways of persuading people, furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first kind, known in ancient Greek as ethos. And we might sometimes today in English talk about the, what's the ethos of the school? What's the kind of community character of this institution? And it kind of means that character. It depends, as he says, on the personal character of the speaker. I, do I seem to you like a used car salesman trying to make a fast buck? You know, would you trust me with your kids? I don't, you know, whatever. Or would you run a mile? <laughs> uh, the second, known as pathos, um, Tchaikovsky wrote a famous uh, symphony called the Pathétique Symphony. Uh, it doesn't mean, as some English people might think, oh, that's a really pathetic symphony. That was a rubbish effort. You know, try harder next time. Uh, now, pathetic, it means really pulls on the heartstrings, really moving you. Pathos. Putting the audience into a certain frame of mind, a certain way of kind of feeling or a certain way of relating, having an attitude towards something. And the third, Logos. A term that we all know well from the beginning of John's Gospel that he nicked out of ancient Greek Stoic philosophy. The logos on the proof. The rational communication is what the idea means, logos. Provided by the words of the speech itself. In other words, the the argument, the evidence that you're giving. So ethos, pathos, logos. Character, um, developing an attitude in the audience and giving them an argument. Now, it should uh, be very nice to notice that St. Paul, uh, though he doesn't use the particular terms directly necessarily, mentions the concepts, He <laughs> even mentions them in the same order that Aristotle does. I don't know whether or not Paul uh, had read Aristotle in particular. He might well have known of the concepts, though, in the culture. This was a very big thing, even up to his day. Um, uh, Cicero, who was the governor of the same area uh, the the, that Paul uh, grew up in in his younger days, um, had written a very famous Roman uh, textbook on rhetoric, drawing on Aristotelian tradition and so on. So this is the kind of uh, intellectual climate of the, the Greco-Roman world that Paul was immersed in, as well as his Jewish culture, of course. <coughs> he says in Colossians 4 verses 5 and 6, when you're, this is advice on, on evangelism and apologetics, in a sense, from Paul. When you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Have a good ethos. And hold their interest. Uh, Have good pathos. Grab their hearts as well as their mind. When you speak the message. Choose your words carefully. And be ready to give answers. To anyone who asks questions. Give them a good logos. That end of their... uh, be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. It puts me immediately in mind of 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer. A logos. And the, the word um, answer there in the Greek, of course, is apologia. <laughs> the defence that a lawyer would give in court. It's apologia, from which we get the term apologetics. Be prepared to give an apologia to everyone who asks you to give the reason... For the hope that you have. Why are they asking you to give a reason? What are they asking you to give a reason for? For this, this, this attitude towards life that, that they see in you. This, this hope that you have in Christ that's making a difference in your life. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with certain attitudes. Do it with gentleness. Actually refers towards the person who's asking the question. And the respect is a term that actually refers to your relationship with God. Out of your respect for God, be pleasant towards the person who's noticed your hope and is asking you to give them a reason for thinking that it's not too good to be true. You know, I've really loved what you've got, but I don't want to chuck my brain out the door in order to have it. You know, we need to uh, reassure people that you don't have to chuck your brain out the door in order to have the hope of Christ, that Christ is indeed the one who is the Logos of God. He is the root of human rationality. This is where it comes from. You can have your cake and eat it in Christ. Indeed, I've always thought it would be very difficult to eat your cake if you didn't have it. I, you know, um, yes. You can't keep. You can't keep your cake and eat it. That would be a better way of putting it. But I don't know why we say that. Um, so. <laughs> uh, Logos, the rational content, pathos, the emotional, but not just the emotions. It's not just about a sort of, oh, I just feel this way about it. Although I wouldn't actually disparage feelings very much. There's lots of interesting research, actually, about the linkage between emotions and uh, knowledge and rationality and things. Um, Ask me over a cup of tea. Um, It's the the affections of the heart, the the attitudes, the, the decisions that you take within yourself. To relate to things in a certain way, those decisions where you say, "I, I, I find so and so really difficult to get along with, and I don't really like being with them, and actually they smell a bit," but I've decided that I'm going to love them, and I'm going to behave in a certain way towards them. You're developing an attitude towards that person, despite the way you feel. About it, So it's not just about feelings. Often, uh, as C.S. Lewis uh, explains very well in some of his literature, if you start acting and deciding to relate in a certain way and then following that with doing in a certain way, often the feelings will then be trained by that and will follow along. We shouldn't be kind of led by the nose by our feelings, but we should be led by what is true, what we decide to have attitudes and then acting on that. And that's faith. And then feelings can sometimes take care of themselves. But, of course, what applies to good communication should, I think, be able to be applied to good education. After all, clearly communicating to students, uh, between students, between students and teacher, is going to be a central part of any educational process in community. We'll we'll come to community in a little while. But... um, Anything about rhetoric that you want to clarify or feedback a question of some kind? Before we move on. Good. Marvellous. <laughs> I'll give you a chance if you don't take it. <laughs> Uh, so let's start applying this, and th- this comes from Nick Pollard, uh, came up with this uh, way of doing it, I think it's very interesting, you just take each of the elements of the rhetoric and then you think, what, what would this mean, applying it to the side of the of the teacher, or the lecturer, or the professor, or whatever, and what would it mean applied to the sides of the students? So Logos will be partly about the content that's being taught in an you know, institution, and I think crucially on the side of the the pupils, it would be about knowledge-gaining capacities of students. And actually, a really fundamental and crucial part of education is the teacher developing in the students their own knowledge-gaining capacities. And I love the way that Stratford Caldicott, in his little book, Beauty for Truth's Sake, puts it here. He talks about developing skills that liberate the learner from further dependence on the teacher. A teacher, in that sense, is like a, a good parent who's trying to uh, develop their children's character so that one day they will fly in the nest and become independent adults in their own right. Not trying to hold on to them all the time and keep them as, as children, but develop them so that they become adults. And there's a, a, a change in the relationship as maturity sets in. Skills that liberate the learner from further dependence on the teacher and conduce by stages to philosophic wisdom. Love that turn of phrase. So these knowledge gaining capacities in students and and developing those in students is fundamental to this Logos part. In terms of pathos, well, the teacher will be wanting to make, yes, emotional, but also affective appeal of the subject that they're trying to communicate, um, trying to make the student realize that emotional and affective appeal of the actual subject matter. Um, it's going to uh, be you know, harder for some students than others to notice that about particular subjects um, but I tend to, to think like this, thinking about music it's like, you know, we all have different music that we just naturally kind of like I guess, we find easy to get along with I don't particularly like um, opera um, I really like 1970s prog rock music you know, that's not everybody's cup of tea, as we say um, but I don't think that people who like opera, that there's anything wrong with them. I don't think they're doing anything immoral when they, when they say, I'm appreciating the beauty of this Puccini aria. What I tend to think is, hmm, there's probably something really beautiful about that Puccini aria that they've noticed. I, I'm just not getting it. And probably, if I spent the time and had someone who was really enthusiastic about Puccini—I actually do quite like Puccini, just um, <laughs> as an example—who you know, um, who took the time to kind of um, uh, immerse me in the world of opera and take me to a few operas and so on, I would probably start noticing what was beautiful about it, and I would come to realise uh, previously unknown vistas of, of wonderment in this particular type of music, and vice versa for prog rock. Okay? Um, so uh, it may be something you have to work at, but I think if there is an intrinsic beauty to something, an intrinsic wonder, an intrinsic truth, an intrinsic goodness to something, a properly functioning human being made in the image of the God of all truth, goodness and beauty, should be able to relate to that. Now, it's not that everyone's going to relate to the, in the same way to everything. We all have our different interests and backgrounds and so on. Um, but, nonetheless. Yes, beyond. Uh, uh, could you comment on the, 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 the thought that maybe commercials, they put a lot of papers, a lot of emotions, yes. manipulating us. Uh, uh, is that rhetoric or is it bad rhetoric? Yes, yeah. that's that's right. I would Absolutely, I would draw a distinction between good rhetoric and bad rhetoric, and for example, I gave you a quote from Saint Paul where he was basically endorsing an Aristotelian view of good rhetoric, but there of course, there are places in his letters and some of the cities and cultures that he went to, I think in Corinth, where he uh, talks very much about not not being part of the rhetorical culture there because he thought it was bad rhetoric, and so Paul was very clear in making a distinction between good rhetoric and bad rhetoric. And I think good rhetoric in terms of pathos, for example, would be you think you believe that it's true that there's something genuinely beautiful about this piece of puccini, whatever. That you've noticed it and you want to share that with other people. And so you try and think, who is this person that I want to share this with? What would be the best way for me to try and get them to see what is beautiful about this piece of music? Say, if you're a music teacher, how can I interest them? Um, You know, is it because they're really interested in history already and I can put this in a historical context uh, that brings it alive for them or something else, you know, whatever it might be. The the kind of manipulative kind of of pathos is, is not so concerned with what's truly beautiful or moving about something, but in trying to create a mood or feeling or an affectation in someone so that they will feel a certain way towards something that might not justify it. You know, that might not live up to the claims that I'm making for it. You know, use this underarm deodorant and your life will be full of love and women throwing themselves at you. Um, Hasn't happened yet, but you know, we live in hope. Um, (laughs) But fueling that kind of... False hope. You know, that's what gives rhetoric a bad name. Um, So absolutely. And then finally, ethos. Again, two sides to think about the teacher of the students. I think this is about spiritual integrity. That is about having not just a worldview, but a whole spirituality that fits together and isn't in constant tension within itself. Now, Francis Schaeffer would have a lot to say about the way in which he thinks that non-Christian spiritualities will always have what he called a point of tension in them. Because fundamentally, people with a non-Christian spirituality are basing their lives on a non-Christian worldview. And if the Christian worldview is truth, non-Christian worldviews, by very by definition, must, must include something that's not true. And that will lead to... Um, responses uh, um, of the heart that are not in line with a reality that justifies those responses or actions that are not good actions uh, and there will be some uh, point of tension between the world as it really is and the, the world that the person is living in their spiritual abode not really meshing with the way reality is but that's, that's something that someone of any worldview could think you know, Richard Dawkins could think that since atheism is true, and justifies certain uh, uh, responses and certain ways of behaving in the world and so on, maybe that a Christian must, in their worldview, their spirituality, have some point of tension. Which, if only I could reveal to you, you know, that it's so bad to be a Christian because it means not thinking about anything, um, and, and not ever, you know, having a reason for what you believe and just going on blind faith. You know, can't you see that that's so bad? Um, can't you see Mr Dawkins that that's not what we're doing um, <laughs> you know. but people from whatever viewpoint could make that analysis and think that integrity is something that they're pursuing, otherwise why why bother complaining about some point of tension in someone's worldview, something that doesn't hang together something that doesn't fit with reality mm-hmm. and so on, everybody does seem to strive towards a, a wholeness an integrity of their spirituality Yeah. I'm going back to the music, uh, mm. and uh, ooh, uh, and um, the kind of music, the party music today, mm. or, uh, have a very uh, have very, uh, clear message. Yeah. Like uh, hedonism. Mm, yep. Yeah? Yep. Uh, and how do you, uh, I just mm. can't. Seem to Ah oh, I don't know if this is a question. I think it's a question. Okay. But um okay. we'll making his of mic? Probably, but we don't know what you're thinking. No. <laughs> 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 they, they think you just... Maybe I I maybe let me yeah. let me see if I feed back to you and we'll we'll bounce this backwards and forwards a bit. Yeah. I was giving examples about things that were beautiful in and of themselves, mm. but which maybe you get and I don't. Okay, But it would, of course, be true to say that there are some things that are ugly. That Some things are more beautiful than others, and some things are actually ugly in and of themselves. Uh, and if it's ugly, and I'm trying to get you to feel positively towards it, then I'm kind of doing a bad thing. <laughs> that would be bad rhetoric. Um, yeah, and, and so uh, I was not at all making the claim that everything is beautiful full stop I would be with those Christian thinkers who would say that everything is beautiful in some way even if it is ugly overall it is beautiful in some way just as in the large parts of the Christian tradition back to Augustine and Peter, we would say some things are evil some people are evil But even to be evil, as C.S. Lewis again, let's reference him again, points out in one of his books, even to be evil, the devil must exist, must be able to think about things, must be able to plan, have intentions. Now, existing is not an evil thing. Being able to plan and think is not an evil thing. It's what you do with your thinking and your planning that can be evil. So even to be evil... The devil depends upon some goodness. So the relationship between good and evil is not that they are equal opposites. But that evil is a parasite upon goodness. Evil depends upon goodness. But goodness does not depend upon God. When God existed, uh, abstract from creation. It's just God. In the beginning, God. Only goodness existed. God is is holy and only good. It's possible for something that's holy and only good to exist. It is not possible for something that is holy and only evil to exist. Yeah? Something beautiful in even disco music. Yes. So even in ugly... Disco music—that is all about hedonistic relationships and, you know, treating women in an appalling manner and having a superficial life uh, based on getting meaning from having bling. Um, you know, like uh, what does the proverb say about a, a, a woman with a, a ring through her nose, uh, but with an ugly character? It's like a, a, a pig with a ring on its nose. You know, it doesn't—you can't change the person by changing the outward appearance kind of thing. The bling does not maketh the man. Uh, to slightly change the quote, the clothes maketh the man. No, they don't. Um, the man maketh the man and then wears some clothes that might reflect his character, maybe. or you know. So, yeah. Uh, you do absolutely have to take into account that um, some things are true, some are false, some are good, some are bad, some are ugly, some are beautiful. And these come in degrees, as, as, as Sire was saying about worldviews. Yeah. Yeah, good question. <laughs> uh, which does kind of bring us neatly onto this topic of the transcendental values, as they're called. Values in terms of which anything and everything can be judged. Uh, goes back particularly to Thomas Aquinas. Oh, a lovely painting of him there. Um, and it relates very much to the rhetoric values that we've talked about. So ethos, character... Would relate very much to the value of goodness, of course. Pathos would relate very much to the, the value of beauty, and logos to truth. Now, I don't want to get too diverted into these values, but let me just read you this very good summation quote. I did a lot of research in my M. Phil days on truth, goodness, beauty, and what they were, and how they related to each other, and how they related to God and things. It's something I'm really interested in, but I'm just going to... Skip over it with this quote. And again, ask me over tea if you're interested in those things. Uh, John Cottingham, who's an English uh, philosopher and a Christian, writing in the Times newspaper a couple of years ago, said this. To everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of truth and of value is correct. Truth, beauty and goodness carry with them the sense of a requirement or a demand, an obligation upon us if you like. The true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. It's not just that you do admire it, you can admire things wrongly. You can admire an evil person. An ugly person. Ugly character. But the beauty is that which is worthy of admiration. That which is good that you admire. So there's a relationship between goodness and beauty. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. And I would argue this means that not only is truth objective, and not only is beauty objective, but once you've defined the beautiful as that which is objectively good to appreciate... Beauty is objective. And I think that the, the Christian church has tended, at least in certain sections of it, to be very hot on truth, very hot on moral goodness, and to have kind of dropped the ball on beauty, somewhat. But they are related, these values. Yes. Being very subjective. Yeah, that's right. We, we, even people who think that truth and, and goodness are objective tend to have been swept along by this, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's just what's, what's beautiful for you, might not be beautiful for me. But that's exactly the kind of same thing that some people would argue about moral values. And I think that the arguments for thinking that moral values are subjective don't work. But that means that the completely parallel arguments for thinking that beauty is subjective also don't work. And in my research, I was fascinated to find out an a, a, um, atheist philosopher um, who said that um, if you thought that goodness and truth were objective, it would be kind of weird not to think that beauty was objective as well because of the way these things seem to be interrelated to each other. Um, he didn't think that moral mor- moral values were objective. He was a subjectivist, but he was saying if you were objective about moral values, shouldn't you also be to be consistent, objective about beauty. And I thought, yes, let's do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Stafford Caldicott again, nice little book on education, beauty for truth's sake, on the reenchantment of education. He says this, I just love this phraseology again. He says, praise of beauty, service of goodness, and contemplation of truth. Are essential to the full expression of our humanity. I hope that chimes with some of the stuff you had earlier in the week. Praise of beauty, service of goodness, contemplation of truth are essential to the full expression of our humanity. And in a sense, I'm saying that good education, spiritual education, spiritual development would develop the character that would praise beauty, serve goodness, and contemplate, delight in contemplating truth. Um, Philippians 4, verses 6 to 9, Um, just in the middle here, let me draw your attention to uh, about halfway down here, where Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, truth, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, in an objective sense, I think he means here, goodness, and whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, beauty, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, worthy of praise, think about such things. So here again is Paul talking about goodness, beauty, truth, and you can also find the uh, the spirituality categories in this uh, quotation as well. And I love this. So I came across this in uh, Demaris' prayer time this last week. We're going through Romans at the moment, and we got to Romans ten fifteen and noted that it was a uh, partial quote of Isaiah 52 verse 7. And I've of course got in my mind at the moment. Uh, beliefs, uh, attitudes, actions. And how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. That if you have news of what's true. And you serve it by bringing that to other people. You serve the, 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 the goodness of that truth. Because this is talking about revelation from God, of course. Then your feet become beautiful. You become a beautiful person by serving the good of God's truth. Uh, All of those categories coinciding um, here. How beautiful are the mountains are! the feet of those who bring God good news. And of course it's not how the feet on the mountains of people who bring good news would be liked by certain people who like that kind of thing, and that's fine for them, but not for me. <laughs> of course not. How beautiful. Now, kaching! This is why I get really excited here. Um, kaching! ching uh, It was uh, two trips ago from Norway where I'd been thinking through all these things. i thinking about spirituality, thinking about rhetoric, and, uh, and then I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, Of course course these things all relate to each other. They're all going to line up in a lovely three by three diagram. So what we have here is a spirituality. uh, Beliefs, attitudes, actions. And uh, this would apply to doing apologetics. I think this will also apply to education. Um, We want to judge the elements of our spirituality by the transcendental values. We want to judge the, the beliefs by whether or not they're true. We want to judge our attitudes by whether or not they're beautiful. We want to judge our actions by whether or not they are good. And if you're trying to communicate these things to other people, you, of course you want to communicate the truth of your beliefs through good logos. You want to communicate the beauty of your attitudes through good Pathos, And you want to communicate the goodness of your life, of your actions, uh, of your moral system, through ethos. <laughs> <Wow. Yeah. laughs> Spirituality judged by transcendental values communicated through classical rhetoric. Question at the back there. Would you agree that even though beauty is a objective value it would be uh, harder to judge than give us the truth because we communicate through pathos or feelings. But often it would be harder yeah. to judge. Yes. Now, th- there's a slight simplification um, put across by this diagram. There's a slight drawback to diagramming it like this. In that notice I was mentioning the way in which the transcendental values kind of related to each other. And that Part of my definition of beauty Depended upon my definition of goodness. And of course that all depended upon my definition of of truth as what corresponds to reality. Um, So it's not like these are sort of separate things that you can pick up beauty without in the same action picking up goodness and truth with it. They are related to each other. Um, but I think, just as you might say, we, we often, you know, there are some times where, in terms of moral questions, we find it very easy to give an answer. Now, should we torture small children for the fun of it? Mm-hmm. No, you know. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, um, should we create uh, saviour siblings using um, genetic screening programs? You will have more disagreement. On a question like that, so there are easy cases, there are hard cases. I think it's like that with beauty as well. Um, how many people here think rainbows are ugly? Okay. Um, you know, how many people here um, like 70s prog rock? Mm-hmm. Oh, 70s prog rock? Mm-hmm. 70s prog rock? Yes. Mm-hmm. Or? Mm-hmm. Uh, Genesis. Yes. Yeah. The Flower Kings. Oh, yeah. um, okay. About five of us in the room. <laughs> uh, so more no disagreement. You know. Um, so. There are easy cases, there are are harder cases, ones that are easy to appreciate, ones that are harder to appreciate. But I think, just as in the moral case, we can develop um, systems of norms, ways of thinking through little rules that we can follow, ways of paying attention to different aspects of moral questions. We can start asking questions like, what's the result of the action? But what's the intention of the person? What kind of character would that develop in someone? Um, What does the Bible say anything directly about it or... Any general principles that we could apply indirectly and so on. And that can help us to clarify and think through some of the harder questions. I think it's the same with beauty. Um, You can start um, teasing apart different aspects of beauty. You can, for example, distinguish between something uh, being a means to an end and the end to which it is a means. OK, so uh, you might say that a, a really beautiful uh, engine, OK, because it's not just artworks that have beauty. You know, engines can be beautiful. Nice ask any engineer. Yeah, lovely. You know, that's a really beautiful engine. Um, might be an engine that's really uh, efficient at what it does. It doesn't waste lots of energy. Um, and the more efficient it is, the more that would contribute to its beauty. But you'd still want to ask what end is being achieved, by this, is it a beautiful end or not? You know, a nuclear bomb has a great deal of beauty of efficiency. It's really good at converting matter into energy. Uh, it's very elegant in its underlying mathematical structure, and so on. And the beautiful. Yeah, a lovely shape, you know. <laughs> um, but the end that it achieves um, could well be thought to be so ugly. And evil as to outweigh the importance of the beauty of its efficiency as a means to that end. And then we would ask the question: well, what matters more to us? The, the end that's being achieved or the efficiency with which it is achieved? <coughs> um, so I think I would say once you start making those distinctions, you might say that a, um, um, a, an incubator, a baby incubator, a machine for keeping premature babies alive, helping them to survive a baby incubator that wasn't terribly efficient, you know, only had a sort of 60% effectiveness at doing that job, would probably be more beautiful than an atomic bomb. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when I say that kind of thing, most people tend to sort of go, yeah, that, that, that seems clear and obvious. But it, it might not have been before I'd made those kind of distinctions. And I think we're used to trying to think through and make distinctions in terms of moral dilemmas and because our culture at a large has even more so than in, the, in the, the, the goodness case and because it's easier to see that, that actually when I'm faced with a moral dilemma I do care about it, I do want to try and work out what's the right answer, I do sort of buy into this objectivity thing because if I didn't I'd say well there's no right answer, it doesn't matter what I do. Why, why are we spending all this energy? having an ethics commission and working out what we, you know, what's, what's the point if there's no goal of what is good towards which we can make progress in our thinking? But I think because we've bought into the subjectivity of beauty so much in culture and even in parts of the church that we've kind of lost the, the knack of treating those subjects in the same kind of way, I think we can treat them in the same parallel kind of manner. So, uh, very quickly, just before we finish, because we're coming up to 11, uh, community. The New Testament word for community, say Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book Total Church, is koinonia. I think I've said that rightly, koinonia. Often translated by the now anemic word fellowship. Koinonia is linked to the words common, sharing, participation. This is a photo of the fellows' library. At Jesus College. They will talk about the fellows of the university. So this is an appropriate word for the educational context. An, an educational institution is something in which people have fellowship in the seeking of an education. Uh, as Charles Colson, Christian, uh, puts it, uh, a community is a gathering around shared values. It is a commitment to one another. And to common ideas and aspirations. A community is not the same thing as uh, a friendship group or a neighbourhood. It is this commitment to shared ideas, aspirations and values. That is, a spiritual community is the social embodiment of a common spirituality. And is therefore constituted, made up by shared beliefs, shared attitudes, shared activities. That's what makes it a spiritual community And so an educational community, if it's going to be a spiritual education seeking community like a school or a college or whatever, it actually is going to require it's going to as a necessary condition of its existence it will have to have some shared beliefs. For example, could you have an educational community that didn't believe in the know ability and communicability of at least some truth. That would be the point. <laughs> um, if we didn't share, say, some ethical standards that facilitate cooperative truth-seeking, things like um, a commitment to marking essays fairly. If they didn't have that ethical community, that commitment, that educational community is very soon going to fall apart, isn't it? And they've got to have shared attitudes, like a commitment to cooperative truth seeking under certain values that they're going to follow. And hence to shared practices. We're going to agree to do things like attend lectures, at least, you know, up to a certain percentage. Do our homework and hand it in on the deadline. And if we're not going to meet it, at least go and ask the teacher for an extension. Things like this. So we're going to behave in certain ways in order to achieve the goal that we are jointly a community in pursuit of. And so there's going to be a certain... Spirituality, a common spirituality necessary to having any educational institution that everyone from whatever their own spiritual community, their own personal spirituality is, must also be a part of. So I can be part of the spirituality of this community so long as that spirituality doesn't conflict with my personal spirituality. The more it conflicts with my personal spirituality, the harder that the community is going to find it. But if there's no conflict between spirituality of the community and my personal spirituality, uh, th- that's fine, that's great. And it doesn't mean that the two spiritualities have to be identical, it just means that we have to have enough agreement on the things that are essential to being an educational institution for us to pursue that common goal of a spiritual education. And we can do that by helping everybody to develop their own spirituality, to think about their own worldview, uh, to uh, think about their own attitudes, to develop their own behaviors, to do that through communication one with another using the standard uh, standards of good rhetoric and so on. So I think education should take place within a spiritual communicate- community founded on a shared understanding of the spirituality That's needed to be such an institution. That's got a a shared understanding of what spirituality is, what good rhetoric is, of the transcendental values. That we should study subjects in relation to those elements that I've talked about in that that grid. Um, To the extent that a person's spirituality is measurable... We can certainly measure things about what people do, what they report, their attitudes are and so on, what they tend to spend their time and money on, for example. Then we can measure spiritual development, which there's a government requirement. And teachers can focus upon, I think crucial, this giving students these foundational knowledge-gaining capacities, this kind of understanding of this framework, an appreciation for spirituality, rhetoric, transcendental values and to shepherding students' engagement of reality through those capacities. And then if you were doing that, I think that would be a spiritual education that was inclusive of people of all spiritualities, uh, or at least all those that, that could have enough of an agreement on the things that were necessary to having an education. It would certainly, I think, actually help you to see some of the problems, some of the issues with some pupils... Of why they're not getting a good education, why they're why they're kind of resisting the education. It's not necessarily just a sort of behavioural problem. It might be that they have fundamentally got a worldview that is in tension with the worldview belief that you have to have to pursue education. It might be that uh, a conflict at the level of their attitudes and so on. So actually, I think thinking this way might actually help uh, teachers and pupils to uh, become more integrated as a spiritual community, rather than just looking at the kind of surface problem of, you know, little Johnny isn't doing his homework, let's give him detention. It might be little Johnny isn't doing his homework because he's a nihilist and he doesn't see any point to doing anything. Let's sit him down and have a talk about his worldview in an appropriate manner. you know, And so on. So I think that there's, there's a lot of fruit that can be kind of born out of uh, these different concepts that i 've tried to plug together, and uh, it 's time, and so I will finish there and if we 've got questions we 've got I think a tea break and things so um, come and come and chat to me.